Awesome. That was a good, good job. Great stories and great reading. That was fun. So I was reading a survey recently by the Pew Research Forum. Uh, they do a lot of research on different things. And they did a research uh, project on what were the most divided countries politically in the world with developed economies. Guess where America was rated? Number two. Normally, we're number one in everything else, right? But this is actually not something you want to win an award in. France beat us. Okay, that's all right. They're more conflicted than we are. But I don't know. It was interesting in this survey as I was kind of reading the, the, the results of it. Uh, one of the reasons that we're so divided is because 59% of Americans cannot agree upon the facts. We don't agree what's true. We've got so many different news outlets explaining and giving different news sources that we can't agree on what the facts are. I mean, we're a democracy. We, we've often in our history had political division. It's not unusual. You may remember the 60s. Anybody remember the 60s? Maybe lived in about it. Some of y'all may have read about it. Remember reading about the 60s? Anyway, I had to read. I was born in the 70s. So I read the 60s. But anyway, in the 1960s, it was a very divided time in our, our nation's history. For sure, we had the anti-war demonstrations because of Vietnam. We had the civil rights protests. We had the sexual revolution. It was a very politically divided time. But we had, we had in the 60s, one voice of truth. His name was Walter Cronkite. Can you remember Walter Cronkite? Kids, you don't know who that is. Google him later, not right now, but YouTube him later. He was the voice of the CBS News at six o'clock. You got the facts, right? He didn't give you as an opinion. He told you exactly what happened. It was Walter Cronkite who in 1963 told us that President Kennedy had been shot in Dallas. It was Walter Cronkite who in 1968 reported that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. It was Walter Cronkite who in 1969 told us about the first man on the moon in Neil Armstrong. Walter Cronkite was, a, was an objective voice of truth and he always ended his uh, newsreels with, and that's the way it is. People cannot agree on that's the way it is today. None of us can agree on what is actually true. We've got so many different news outlets, so many different opinions, so many different ways and slanted ways of looking at what's true that it creates great, great division in our country, in our schools, in our homes. But we know from our study on the Sermon on the Mount last fall that we as followers of Jesus are called to be peacemakers, for Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So how are we supposed to bring peace in the midst of divided, conflicted country, countries and community? How are we called to be instruments of God's peace? Well, I think the best way to be an instrument of peace is to Look at what Paul had to say about that. Uh, I would encourage you, if you've got an iPhone or an Android or a Bible, whatever, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But before we get into the text, I want to give a little bit of background to 2 Corinthians, a little bit of historical and scriptural background to 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's important for us to know that in Acts 18, we read that while the Apostle Paul was in the city of Corinth for a year and a half as a tent maker, he was preaching the gospel, helping start the church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very interesting city. It was kind of like a modern-day Las Vegas, right? What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. It was known for its sexual uh, promiscuity. In fact, there's a Greek term, to Corinthianize, which means to participate in sexual debauchery, right? It was, it was an immoral city. But Paul was faithfully preaching, starting a church in Corinth. But when he left, the church fell apart. 
They succumbed to sexual temptation and sin. They were even divided. Uh, some were saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Paul. And Paul's like, oh, you've got it all wrong. We're all following Jesus. And so he writes the letter, the first letter, 1 Corinthians. It's a wonderful letter. In fact, we uh, plan to preach through it this summer. It's a great letter that talks about what it means to follow Jesus as one body in Christ, to be united, not divided. What is God's sexual ethic for us who are followers of Jesus, knowing that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and to help point out the reality of the resurrection? You see, there were some in Corinth who questioned whether or not there actually was a a resurrection, a bodily resurrection. And and so he had to clear up all this misunderstanding. And And he went and visited them as well because he loved the church in Corinth. Well, now Paul's writing a second letter as a follow up with the intent of visiting them yet again. And while he was with them, he began to realize that, well, he had some unreconciled relationships because. Well, sometimes his his letters could be a little harsh. People didn't always like what he had to say. And in person, they always thought Paul, because he was so humble, he seemed very unimpressive. I mean, the Corinthians were used to really charismatic-type leaders and outspoken and bold and prophetic-type voices, but, but Paul seemed very humble and unimpressive. And so they began to question his leadership, even though he was the apostle who started their church. And so in an effort to be reconciled to them, He writes this letter, specifically this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11, where we might discover how we can be instruments of peace in the midst of a divided land. Before we read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Paul to write this letter, a follow-up letter, to a church he loved so much. While it would have been easy for him to walk away and to to dismiss this congregation because they questioned his leadership, he doesn't. He continues to reach out to them with the truth of your gospel, your gospel which changes everything. So God, I pray that as you read these words that you might use these words to change us from the inside out that we might live as your transformed people, as your new creation, bearing witness to your love in all that we say and do. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Listen to God's word. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh even though we once regarded christ according to the flesh we regard him thus no longer 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here in the reading of God's word, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at uh, verse 14. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. That's really strong language. In fact, that word also be translated as seize. The love of Christ seizes us, grabs a hold of us, controls us, guides us, leads us, directs us. I really like the way Eugene Peterson translates that uh, verse and phrase in his uh, message, which is a contemporary English translation of the Bible. He says this, Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. Christ's love, let's read that together. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. Is that true for you and me today? Does Christ's love have the first word and the last word in everything we do? In everything we do? Are we controlled by the love of Christ? Has the love of Christ seized us in such a way that we're led by the love of Christ, that his love is the first word and the last word in everything we do? Is that true for you and me today? Well, sometimes it's true for me. Like when I go on a mission trip. Uh, I went on a mission trip to Spain with my family and the Bells and the Palmers and the Woods. It was a great trip, at least on paper. And it turned out to be fine. But we had this plan to go to Spain. And we left on a Friday. And because of some inclement weather in Dallas, uh, we missed our connection flight to, to Madrid. And so we, we were stuck in Dallas for a couple of days. And, and when I go on a mission trip, I, you know, I used to be a missions pastor. And so I know that you, know, you plan out these mission trips to the, to the hour. But the fact is you've got to let God be in control because you're not in control. And, and I was reminded of that again. And so I, I just said, okay, Lord, this is your trip. You're in control. You've got us stuck here in Dallas. I'm not in control of the weather you are. So if you want us to in Dallas, I guess you want us to witness and share the gospel with someone in Dallas. So I, we made uh, hotel reservations. There were all the hotels around the, the airlines were booked. So we made reservations on a, on a hotel. I've got a, a, a membership with Choice Privileges. So we went to Comfort Suites uh, on Stimmons Freeway. And so when we got in the cab, I, I just said to myself, Lord, is there someone you want to witness to? Let me know. Well, I look and there are the cab driver. He's got a, an Ethiopian flag hanging from his rear view window. And so I asked him, I said, are you, are you Ethiopian? He said, well, yes, I am. I said, great, how long have you been in the country? And he told me about five years. I said, oh, that's great. You know, I was reading about the Ethiopian eunuch the other day in Acts 8. Do you know that story? He said, no, I'm Muslim. I said, well, you need to hear this story then because you're Ethiopian. And there was this Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, where he read that someone, this servant, was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the Ethiopian's all confused, not knowing who this is. And so Philip shows up and says, oh, well, that's Jesus. 
Jesus, the Son of God, who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, he died on a cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins, and then he rose again on the third day. We can have a relationship with him if we simply believe in faith. Have you heard that story? And he said, no, I haven't heard that story. I said, oh, well, you gotta get a Bible. Let me tell you about that. And Mark and started sharing the gospel with this guy. And, well, he didn't come to faith, but he was an attentive audience. I mean, he was probably working for a good tip. I don't know, but he was at least paying attention, right? Seeds were being planted, right? Well, we show up to our hotel on Simmons Freeway, and uh, anyway, the uh, attendant at the hotel was actually asleep. We had to wake him. It was 2 a.m., and uh, his computer was down, and while the national office said that they had three available rooms, they didn't because they were booked, and so I was like, oh, man, bummer deal, and I remember walking to this hotel thinking, I'm not sure I want to stay here anyway. In fact, uh, Michael Ann said, this place is sketch. I was like, yeah, it's pretty sketch, so anyway, thanks be to God. He delivered us from that hotel. And we got another hotel on I-20. You can tell we're getting further and further away from DFW if you know the Dallas area at all. And so again, I'm like, man, it's 2 a.m. Like, oh, how are we going to get a ride? And so I'm Ubering, hoping that maybe someone will be kind enough to pick us up at 2 a.m. And sure enough, there was a driver. And so we told him about our plague and being on this mission trip and shared the gospel with him. And we were just planting seeds in Dallas, in Madrid, Santiago de Compostela. Now, just so you know, we are going back to Spain. This time we're going to drive to Dallas. We do not miss a connecting flight because of these hopper flights. I try to learn from my mistakes. But the point is, when you're on a mission trip, you've got to know you're, you're not in control. God's in control. And when our plans are thwarted, it's an opportunity to let the love of God control us so that we might be a witness of his reconciliation, an ambassador, a messenger of his love. Has the love of Christ taken control of us in such a way that every word from the beginning to the end is guided by his love? Sometimes it is, but not always for me at least. True confessions, I got an email a couple weeks ago um, from one of my son's teachers explaining that uh, we were going to have to pick up our son at 445 because he had this after school project he had to work on. And so, you know, Thursdays are my busiest day because that's actually when I write the sermon. And uh, I'd had a real busy Thursday actually having to do, uh, deal with some things that were not a part of my sermon prep. So I'm like, man, I got to get this sermon written. So I'm writing, kind of cranking it out. And from my head, I'm like, okay, it's a 10-minute drive to my son's school and then a 10-minute drive to my house. It's only a 20-minute 20 20 minute intermission. It'll be fine. I can still get this sermon done before it too, gets too late. And I try to get the sermons done Thursday evening so that on Friday morning I can edit it down one last time and then send it off for the slides for Kara to make slides. So anyway... Uh, 4.45, I show up dutifully at the parking lot at 4.44, right? I was a minute early. I was like, all right, 4.44. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait some more, and I wait even more. And now it's 5.15. I've been sitting in the parking lot for 30 minutes, as have a bunch of other parents. And I've been texting John. I've been calling John. I went into the building to find I could not find my son. I wish I could tell you I was controlled with the love of Christ in that moment. But that would be a lie, and this is the church, so I try not to lie, particularly from the pulpit. So I was frustrated. How can we make sure that we are controlled by the love of Christ as Paul was? Because you read this letter, you've got to know, he actually doesn't have a great relationship with the church in Corinth. I mean, people are questioning Paul, the apostle, and his leadership. Even though he started the church, people are like, oh, I'm not sure, so Paul's so impressive, he's so humble, I don't know about this guy. He's like, he could get angry. But instead, he's controlled by the love of God. He's controlled by the love of Christ. How can we make sure that we are controlled by the love of Christ so that Christ's love is the first word and the last word that we speak to others? 
Well, notice what Paul is doing uh, in verses 11 and 12 of our text. It says this. Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear or the reverence of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. There were these religious leaders who were boasting about their outward appearance and they were so charismatic and impressive and and like that's the outward thing. What God cares about is the heart. And so he says, those who boast about the outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. Paul is helping them see that he operates his ministry out of a transformed heart. That he's a new creation. How does one get a a transformed heart? How did he, how did Paul get a, a transformed heart? You may remember the story. It's found in Acts 9. In Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus, that's his Jewish name, he's on the road to Damascus to actually go and persecute Christians. He he's, uh, was standing there in Acts 8 in approval when they stoned Stephen, one of the first deacons. He was all in favor of that. And he's like, I'm going to go get some more of these followers of Jesus. And he, he goes off to Damascus to do so. But as he's going, Jesus seizes Paul. He blinds him on the road to Damascus. And even though he's blind, in that moment, Saul's eyes are open to who Jesus really is. You remember the story. Saul's on the road, and then this blinding light comes from heaven, and the resurrected Jesus from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in fear and trembling and down on his knees, Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus from heaven, says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus speaks to Saul and And Saul's heart is transformed from the inside out. And for the first time, Saul is able to see who Jesus is. He's the son of God, the great I am, the savior of the world. And Saul's eyes are open to see that what the cross of Christ was was not the execution of a criminal, but of an innocent, sinless savior who died on the cross to pay the price for all of our sins together. And as he experienced this transforming love of Christ, because Paul knew that well, that his, his persecuting the followers of Jesus, his, his plan to go kill some in Damascus was a heinous crime. But Jesus doesn't abandon or condemn Paul. He reveals himself to him and he invites Paul to follow him, to join him in his great mission of making disciples. And so humbled by this, Paul's eyes are forever changed and he sees others not through the condemnation of the law, but by the love of Christ. And so he writes in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. When Paul was a non-believer, he regarded Jesus as a false prophet who needed to be crucified, but no longer. His eyes have been opened to who Jesus is. His heart has been transformed. We regard him thus no longer. Yes, when we realize just how much God loves us, then our eyes are transformed and we begin to see others as God does. Those who are created in his image. Those whom Jesus was willing to die for. And with that new vision, we are transformed. As Paul writes in 17 to 21, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that Paul identifies himself as an ambassador for Christ. What's an ambassador? In the ancient world, an ambassador was somebody who was a a messenger from his homeland who had a message from his superior leader in his homeland, his king, bringing a message to a foreign land. As a follower of Jesus, Paul knows that he is now a, a citizen in God's kingdom, and he's got a message, a message of reconciliation, a message of God's reconciling love that we find in Jesus Christ, and he's called to share that message with others. And the message is summarized beautifully in verse 21 of our text where he says, for our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. How did God make Jesus sin exactly? I mean, Jesus had no sin. He was the son of God. How did he make him sin? Make him sin? Well, it begins with the incarnation. If you think about it, Jesus is God's son, who's fully God and fully man, co-eternal with the Father, begotten, not made. Jesus leaves the glory of heaven and becomes a, a baby in a lowly manger when he takes on fallen human flesh. And then he is raised as the child of a carpenter, doing a blue-collar job most of his life. And then when he's about 30 years old, he's, he's baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit, like a dove, comes upon Jesus and the voice from heaven, God the Father, says, this is my son whom with, with whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. But unlike our first parents, Adam and Eve, Jesus does not succumb to the temptation of Satan. Every time he thwarts Satan's temptations with the word of God so that he chooses to be the, the sinless one. And his ministry launches as he begins to preach these bold messages and he begins to heal people and cast out demons and he allows the lame to walk. He even brings the dead back to life and he, he humbly washes his disciples' feet in the upper room and then eventually he humbles himself to the point of death on a cross so that he who knew no sin became sin for us. As Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. It's not coincidence that Jesus died on a cross on a tree. He became a curse for us so that our sins might be atoned for. Yes, Jesus took on flesh, human flesh, so that he might die a a sinner's death so that we won't have to, so that our sins could be atoned for, so that we could be reconciled or, or brought into a right relationship with God. And we now live our life in light of that loving relationship with God. Yes, I believe the key to bringing peace to a divided country, to a divided community, to a divided household is the reconciling love of God. By making sure that as Paul commends the church in Corinth, in verse 20, he says, be reconciled to God. Notice Paul doesn't say, be reconciled to me, because obviously he had conflict with the church in Corinth. It would have been easy for Paul to say, be reconciled to me. I'm your father in the faith. You should be reconciled to me. No, he says, be reconciled to God. Paul is concerned about the salvation of the Corinthians. 
He knows that if they're not reconciled to God, their salvation is in peril. He says, be reconciled to God. Humble yourselves because the gospel of Christ humbles all of us. And Paul knows that if the Corinthians will will be reconciled to God and and humbly come to faith in Christ and put their faith in Christ and and live for Christ, not as lukewarm Christians, but hot Christians on fire for Christ where the love of Christ controls them, well, then he'll be reconciled to the Corinthians. They'll become humble as he is because the gospel humbles all of us. And it's humility. That's the first step to bringing peace and reconciliation to division. Are you in conflict with someone today? Do you have conflict in your life, whether it be at work or maybe at school, maybe even in your home? Maybe you're conflicted over politics. Maybe you're conflicted over something someone said. I believe the key to to bringing peace, to being peacemakers, is remembering the reconciling love of God. Remembering to what extent Jesus is willing to go so that we might be reconciled to God that he left the glory of heaven, he became a baby in a manger, and then he died on a cross and died the death we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. That reconciling God, that love, transforms all of us from the inside out if we humbly come to him in faith. Are you in a conflicted relationship now? Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much God loves your neighbor that you're in conflict with? Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is truly level. The gospel helps us see that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. The gospel helps humble us that we become instruments of peace as, we, as we're controlled by the love of God, that it's the love of God that allows us to see everyone. The lens of Christ's love. People were created in his image, and he loved them so much that he's willing to die for them. And if he loves them so much, how much more should we? Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we live in a divided nation. There's division in homes, communities, and political spheres. We know that you call us to be peacemakers, and we can see from this text that Paul had conflict with the church in Corinth. There were some who questioned his leadership, even though he was an apostle who started their church. But he, he shows grace and forgiveness and encourages them to be reconciled to God, to humble themselves, knowing that it's when we understand the love of Christ, when we allow that to define us, then our eyes are opened and we see others through the lens of that love. Oh God, may it be true of all of us. May we seek to live as your reconciled people, not just preaching a message of reconciliation, but living it out, doing what Paul did, going the extra mile, writing multiple letters, traveling and visiting hundreds and hundreds of miles to see the church in Corinth face to face so that he could be reconciled to them, knowing that his message of the reconciling love of Christ has its greatest power when we as the body of Christ live in reconciled relationships with each other. Oh God, may we humbly seek to serve and to be reconciled to others, knowing to what extent and what cost you went through so that we could be reconciled to you. It's your son's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.